Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. There are two predominant worldviews in Western civilization of which America is a part. Relativism, which says whatever you believe is fine for you, whatever I believe is fine for me, doesn't really matter. There's no objective truth. And then deism is the other of the two major worldviews, which basically believes there's some kind of God, but he really doesn't interact with life on earth. There is a third worldview. Uh, I call it moral paganism. It doesn't have a name, an official title yet, but it's society's consensus in which media now calls democracy. Moral paganism uh, doesn't have any stronger grasp on the truth than relativism or deism, but it is the idea that what I believe is true and you better believe what I believe is true. Now, a worldview is, as Norman Geisler said, like colored glasses. It colors everything at which we look. It's a grid through which one views life. And as such, it helps form our thoughts, our values, and our decisions. Another person wrote that a worldview is a way of looking at and explaining life and the world and typically consists of a set of beliefs that influences a person's perspectives, values, and actions. Now, when it comes to paganism... There is, this worldview has seven important concepts. Let me give them to you. The first concept of paganism is there's no objective or codified rules. Make up your own path. Wherever you want to go is fine. The second, nature is preeminent. That's why they call it Mother Earth. And if pressed for a religion, a pagan will say something like nature is their choice. Pagans believe in gods but specifically not Jehovah. And they don't leave Christianity out. They don't believe in Allah either or any of the other gods or the Hindu gods. They don't believe any of those. Number four, they do believe in magic, but uh, are not necessarily witches or involved in witchcraft. They believe in some kind of afterlife, but it's usually mixed within with some sort of Hinduism or Norse, that's Viking theology or mythology. And finally, they have morals. But, but they don't think of a violation of one's moral code as a sin. One pagan said it this way, most pagans have their own set of morals, but we don't go off an old book to tell us what's right or wrong. We just know it in our hearts. This is what C.S. Lewis called ethics based on instinct. The problem of both relativism and deism and moral paganism is that the grid through which one sees life is a set of beliefs and influences, your perspectives, your values, your, your decisions or actions, are decidedly against God. This is how pro-abortion groups have been so vocal lately, willing to chant, quote, my body, my choice, without very much pushback in media full well knowing that a baby that they would like to abort is not, quote, their body, end quote. In fact, this past week, I listened to an outspoken abortionist on MSNBC say that the baby, the aborted child, this was the language she was using. On the flip side, by the way, it doesn't mean they're all bad. And these people, because they love earth and love nature, generally want to clean up the environment, which I consider to be a good thing. They write about 
things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a collection of marine debris in the northern Pacific Ocean. By the way, there's actually two of them now. I think cleanliness is a good thing, so it doesn't mean they're all bad. But what moral paganism is doing is it's firming up a set of beliefs as a replacement for Christianity. They're replacing what we believe with a new set of beliefs. And they're saying, if you don't agree with us, we will kick you out of society. And because of that, paganism and deism and relativism are all in conflict with a biblical worldview. Here's where we differ. As I stand here now, I differ with most of the people who lives in the homes around me on things like sin, who God is, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Bible, personal holiness and daily living. You can add a number of things to this list. And these differences exist because they do not possess a biblical worldview. Now, here's what I think a biblical worldview is. It begins with this idea. Number one, there is a creator God. We went through this a few weeks ago. And it answers the question of what is really real, or what uh, one writer on worldviews calls the prime reality. The really real is God. And for me, it answers the questions like origination. Where did I come from? God created me. Or my identity. Who am I? Someone created by God. It even answers questions about who God is. He is a higher power, a greater being, supreme biblically, who has at least some sovereign rights as a creator. It also answers questions about the nature of the world around us. Because if there's a creator God, then he created the world. And it's not something that merely evolved or that is even presently evolving as evolutionists say, in fact, I would say biblically man is devolving. This also answers questions about the nature of man. Man is created in the image of God. And because God has created me, he has given me conscience and rationality, at least sometimes when I'm not driving, maybe. Okay, rationality. It also begins my understanding of right and wrong. Now, this creator God, that's the first idea of my worldview. There's a second idea. Uh, there is a creator God. He has revealed himself. That's the second idea. God revealed himself. God's revelation indicates what happens to me in life and death. His revelation, the Bible, helps me understand better how to know the difference between right and wrong. His revelation helps me understand the whole point to human history, the trajectory, or, or I would say the arc on which life is bending, leading to an eternal home. Because of God's revelation, I've come to learn about God, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit of Triunity, that he is good, and that truth is in God. I, I learn here the meaning of life. I know from Scripture what culture should be, how people should live, the purpose of human laws and its value, and even my destiny, and I would say even my purpose for while I'm here. Why am I here? To glorify God, Scripture says. This revelation answers questions pertaining to meaning and morality and life after death. And all of that is so different from what is becoming this other worldview 
The disagreement gap is now widening. Here, here's where I disagree with most of the people around me. I disagree on questions of gender. God created male and female. I disagree on questions of sexual ethics. I, I disagree about the value of human life. And I would say uh, because of God's word, I disagree about the legal system and a righteous response to crime. I believe in personal responsibility. I think that's a biblical truth. I believe in a biblical understanding of economics. And again, the list goes on. But because of this widening gap, I'm left with a question. And that question is this. Who will you believe? Now, this is the third part of my worldview. I've been presenting to you from Hebrews 11, my worldview. I think it's the biblical worldview. There is a creator God. He has revealed himself. And now the third point. I trust him. It really is that simple. I trust him. And the question is, do you believe that or not? This is where faith begins. Trust is not all of faith. Biblical faith is more than just trust. I'm going to call this the first half of faith. But I believe God, not because I can see him, but because he spoke. This is the beginning of faith. This is the worldview of these witnesses in Hebrews 11, who were recipients of a divine testimony to the coming eschatological realities and then by their faith, they became participants in and witnesses to the world to come. They actually, from what they heard from God, were able then to believe him and then the second half of faith respond to what he said. So let's consider this idea of trust. And I have three points that I want to give to you this morning. Number one, I trust God has a better or a greater you can put either word there, it's fine. A better place for me. We have God's promise of another place than this. And aren't you glad of that? By faith, Abraham traveled around in the land of promise like he was in a foreign country, dwelling in a tent, not even a house. Now, Abraham had two competing ideas about the place he lived. On the one hand, it was promised to him. You go back to Genesis 12. God says, leave Ur of the Chaldees. Go to a land that I will show you and give you as an inheritance. But along with that land of promise, then he made two other promises. I will give you a seed. And out of that will come a multitude of people like the stars in the heaven, like the sand on the seashore. And you will be a blessing to the world. And this is the basis of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, the agreement that God makes unconditionally with Abraham. But wow, that was true. So every rock, every piece of dirt, every blade of grass was his. It was a foreign country. There were people already living there. He, he wasn't related to any of them. When he tried to find a son for a wife for his son Isaac, he had to send his servant back to his homeland, find somebody from his family. In fact, when he went to bury his wife, he had to buy the land 
in which to bury her. Abraham's faith in God's promises, even though he's a foreigner in this country, they extended to his son and grandson. It's very specific. Do you see this? It wasn't just Abraham now dwelling in a tent and wandering about this foreign land. His son did it too. And you can imagine, why would a son do this if he didn't have this promise? It was Isaac, not Ishmael. By the way, the second, not the first. And then later, Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau. Again, the second, not the first. And they became inheritors of God's promise. This promise includes Jesus. I think that's the seed. And blessing, that's the covenant family and salvation. Becoming part of God's family. And in this, because of Abraham's faith, and those who believe like Abraham, we become inheritors of the same promises. Not the land promise, that's to Abraham's actual offspring, the Jews. But to the other parts, to the promise of seed, the promise of blessing. So because I believe God has a better place for me, and it's not this place, that place, that blessing is letter B, where we will be at home with God. Do you see in verse 10? He looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He seemed to be a foreigner because he was searching for God's city. His pilgrim lifestyle is the result of his faith. He wandered about because he was at home where God was. And while he knew the land was promised to him, was real promise, real land, he knew that there was something more to the promise. So while he looked for that city, he lived in a tent. But he looked for that city. And he didn't think of this life as being his real inheritance. Friends, this is the crucial element of Abraham's trust. He wasn't just trying to get more of earth. He was looking for the eternal city, one he could not physically see. That's why it's trust. He couldn't physically see it. It was built by God. Do you see? Builder and maker. It was God was the architect of that city. He's the builder of the city. He not only designs the city, he's the contractor who gets the work done. And because God is the builder of that city, it has eternal foundations. Remember what I said. Abraham had some understanding of eschatological realities. He had some knowledge that there's an eternality to this. There's a future to this. And he understood here, there is a heaven to be found. And when you understand this, friends, when you come to say, I trust God, he has a better place for me, it means trusting him for an eternal home. Do you know him as your savior? If you say yes, then you should be living not in light of earth, but in light of heaven, having an eternal home. Well, that should change the way you live your daily life. Not living for now, you're living for then. It should change the way you look at money and look at time and look at work. The way you see your possessions. Even the way you think about your health and end-of-life discussions. I often wonder why so many Christians try so hard to stay alive physically. Knowing, or they say they believe, that there's a precious, special place waiting for them.
on the other side. Friends, I don't want to live one day longer than God wants me to live. I tell people this all the time. I, I've loved life. I liked childhood. I had great parents. So I had a great childhood. Now, some of you didn't have that. I understand that. And I'm, I am sorry for you. But I, I did have good parents. I had a great childhood. I, I liked high school. Junior high wasn't too bad. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed the whole way. I liked getting married. I liked having kids. I liked uh, being a part of this church plant. Uh, I, I loved every minute of that. Not every minute, most of the minutes. <laughs> I don't mind getting old. I've got a bunch of diseases now. You know, some are not serious. Others are. It's okay. One of them will kill me eventually. It's all right. I'm going to enjoy it. And let me tell you something. Here's what I'll be thinking at my last moment. I just can't wait to get to the other side. It's great. I, you know, and for all those sorrowful people, if there'll be anybody standing around my bedside, you know, if anyone will be there, if there's a funeral and anyone will be there, you know what I'm going to be thinking at that moment? I'm sorry for you. This is exciting. There's a better place. And I, I trust God. I believe that. And just as I trust that God has a better place to me, I trust him even though his promises seem to be impossible. This is point number two. I trust him even though his promises seem impossible. I see, I judge him to be faithful in keeping his promises. Look at verse 11. Through faith, Sarah received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was really, really, really old because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now the promise to Abraham was biologically impossible. Sarah had been barren her entire adult life. It wasn't that she hadn't had that she had had children already, but was now postmenopausal and couldn't have any more children. She had never had any children of her own to begin with. In fact, remember what happened when she was originally told that a year from now you'll have a child in Genesis 18. She laughed out loud, and who wouldn't have laughed? Oh, come on, you would have laughed. <laughs> That's ridiculous. She's 90 years old. We have nobody here that's 90 years old. But I'm going to tell you, if we get a 90-year-old here lady who says to me, Pastor, I think next year I'm going to have a child. I'm sorry, it's going to be hard to stifle a little bit of laughter. Sarah laughed. It's funny. That's, that's hilarious. You're going to end up on the cover of some magazine in the grocery store. I hope it's a 19-pound baby, you know, so it's just a lot to talk about. She thought it was impossible for her. She said, this was what Sarah said, the way of women with me is over. No, There was no example in the ancient world, and there's no example in the modern world of 90-year-olds having kids. Abraham, you know, he also thought it was impossible. In Genesis 17, he says, I'm 100 years old. This doesn't happen. And by the way, Abraham, you know, he had faith, but it started off pretty weak. Because after this promise, he tried to circumvent the promise by having Ishmael through Hagar. And then as he's traveling around, he runs into these other people living in the land. And he's afraid because his wife was beautiful that they would take her as 
their own. Now, let me tell you something. Sarah is said to be the most beautiful woman who ever lived. She had to be. She was 90, and these men were saying, wow, look at her. I'd like to marry her. That's, that's pretty incredible. So you understand. I, I know I'm right at the edge of falling into a cliff here, but I, you understand <laughs> what I'm saying here. I'm just saying this is what the Bible says, folks. But twice Abraham lies about her because he's afraid that he will die before the promise is revealed. So his faith wasn't quite there yet. And so initially weak, Abraham and Sarah came to believe that God would keep his pledge. And that's what the verse is saying. The confirmation of the strangers there back in Genesis 18, this revelation helped her to trust in God. As the preacher says, she determined that God is faithful to keep his word, which is why, though it seems impossible, I believe him. Though it seems, this is not, this is science fiction type stuff. Jesus is coming back to earth. He ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead. That sounds like somebody, something somebody wrote in a comic book. But that's what scripture teaches. And not only is the impossible real, I know what seems impossible is actual. Verse, that's letter B, verse 12. Out of Abraham, even of one and him as good as dead, sprang many, a multitude. Abraham having one son through Sarah seemed impossible. He's the one as good as dead. His age meant having children was not possible. Yet out of him comes this multitude. And here's the comparison. Like the stars in the heavens is in number as the sands are on the seashore that cannot be numbered. This is why his name is changed from Abram or Avram, like uh, Av, or we would say A-B, Av, but in Hebrew, Av means father. Avram means exalted father. But it was Avrahim, Avrahim. And now, father of a multitude, father of many. And he has no kids. What a joke. God changes his name before he had his son. And verse 12 demonstrates that God did exactly what he promised to do. And friends, when God's promises seem impossible, I still trust him. Peter called them in 1 Peter, great and precious promises. This promise of land and seed and blessing, what we call today blessings in Christ. And I think I started thinking this week of all the blessings God has promised to me, his divine love, the forgiveness of my sins, the freedom from sin that he has given to me in Christ, adoption into his family, a Holy Spirit who indwells me, his eternal presence with me, exaltation when I humble myself, heaven, answered prayers, wisdom and trials and tests, a sure promise or a sure purpose rather, supplies for our needs, spiritual rest. He never fails. He never abandons me. Assurance and eternal security, a new and perfect resurrection body someday, spiritual strength for the battle, a defeated devil, and Jesus is coming again. And he's made all these promises to me, and they are great, and they are precious. And I believe him, though they seem impossible.
And just as I believe that God has a better place for me and that he is faithful even when his promises seem to be impossible, I trust him then when he leads me into difficult circumstances. It's one thing to trust God when things are going well. Remember what Jesus says about friends? Everybody's friends with nice people. That's easy to be friends with people who like you. Boy, you look nice today. Oh, that guy. No. Mm-mm. He's, no. That's, that's fake. No. Boy, you sure are a good person. No, I don't like it. That's, that's weird. You like people who like you. People who compliment you. People who are kind to you. It's your enemies that are hard to love. Well, here we have kind of a similar thing because I can trust God when things are good. When I wake up and nothing hurts. When, when I get up and for some reason my eyes decided not to be blurry today, you know, I praise the Lord. When, when, uh, when um, I, what I eat doesn't, agrees with me, is not disagreeable. When the shower gets warm, not too warm, just exactly where I want it to be. All the way to the end of the night when I lay down on the bed at night and nearly every night as I lay down in my bed, I say, thank you, Lord, for a wonderful mattress. I'm not joking. I actually praise him for that. It really is a good mattress. (laughs) So why not praise him, right? Why not be thankful? And and yet not every day is like that. There are days when you get those phone calls that just kind of like an earthquake shake your foundations. Sometimes it's your health in a doctor's office when you hear the dreaded C word. Or sometimes it's a call from the principal's office. When you hear the dreaded B word, that's misbehavior. Sometimes it's a letter in the mail, a bill you did not expect. There's just hundreds of these. And when that happens, I still trust God. I still trust him. Because I know, letter A, that the, the tests of life challenge my trust in him. It does put me to the test. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, you see that test? And God's command to Abraham required incredible cost. Genesis 22 indicates God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son on an altar. He says back in Genesis 22, verse 2, sacrifice Isaac, the one whom you love. Sometimes God commands us to give up our greatest loves. You walk through life, and God says, it's time to give up part of your family. That's hard. It's time to give up your career. That can be difficult, especially for men who often find a lot of their self-worth in their work. It's time to give that up. It can be difficult when you realize your future was not what you planned. It can be difficult when your health begins to fail, or when your life comes to a close. God says, give up what you love, Abraham. Take your son, your only son. Now he had Ishmael, but that wasn't really his son, not the son of promise. Take that son of promise, your treasured Isaac, and take him to Moriah, to the very place across the valley from the place I will offer my own son on a cross. Take your son and offer him there as a sacrifice. 
It was a test. And verse 12 indicates that the test was to demonstrate Abraham's fear of the Lord. Do you, do you know something, friends? God wasn't figuring out who Abraham was. He already knew. God isn't out there going, well, I just wonder. How's Job going to respond to this trial? He knew. He wasn't sitting there in some sort of almost blasphemous picture that people have, like he's got this big white beard. He wasn't out there just stro stroking his beard. How, how is my servant down in North Carolina going to respond to this crisis I'm going to give him this year? No. God knew Abraham's heart. He knew Abraham's mind. All of this was to show Abraham something. And verse 17, it translates fear to faith. The fear of Genesis 22, 12, Abraham's fear of God. The writer of Hebrews, the preacher, says that was the fear of God. Or the faith of God. You see, that fear that Abraham had. It said, I was a fear of God to say, I will trust him. God challenged Abraham to put his faith on the line. And the question in Isaac's sacrifice is, do you trust in me? Are my promises real or not? You see, folks, when you're sitting in a hospital room and, and life is really bad, do you believe that he loves you or not? When you're sitting there and handing the keys to your house to somebody else because your whole finances have gone south, as a lot of people did in the last few years, can you just say, praise God from whom all blessings flow? I'm just going to sing that right now. That's just in my heart. Praise you, Lord. See, it's hard to believe God when the things are impossible or seemingly impossible, but it's just as hard to believe God when things are painful. I'm in the marrying and burying stage of life. I'm, I'm going to bury my parents at some point. My dad reminds me of this nearly every week. And I'm marrying off my children one by one. Right? Marrying, bearing phase of life. It's a kind of an interesting phase. But you just kind of go through these things and you, you know, you can look at it and go, this is horrible. This is terrible. This is awful. Or you can look at it and say, you know, God is still loving and God is still good and God is still kind and his promises are still real. You see, the way, the way it worked for this couple was, letter B, under the third point, they believed him. I put it in the first person, I believe him because I know he will never go back on his word. But they believed him because they knew he'll never go back on his word. They accounted that God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead. So that from then on, figuratively speaking, Isaac would be one who had died and come to life again. 
Abraham passed the test because he came to a firm conviction, a conclusion about God, which was, I can always trust him. And specifically, his promises, they're real. God said to him, in Isaac will your seed be called, not in Ishmael. Abraham had already prayed, oh, may Ishmael live before you. And God says, no, nope, won't be Ishmael. Ishmael is not the child of promise. He's not the son that I promise you. Isaac will be the seed. Isaac will be the son of promise. It was down to Isaac or nothing. And his faith said, God can raise Isaac from the dead. <laughs> My friends, this is amazing faith. Can you see the doctrinal conclusion that Abraham came to? The theological conclusion? There's no resurrection. There's no Bible back then. This is a Genesis. We're only separated from the flood by a hundred, couple hundred years. He, he's got nothing to go on other than when God speaks to him. And yet, God had said, your seed will we'll grow to be like a multitude. That's why I changed your name. And so he's sitting there thinking, and I can imagine that ponderous night because he did come to this conclusion. That's what Hebrews says. He came to this conclusion. Well, when was it? After God said, sacrifice your son, and early the next morning when he got up to leave. So somewhere between when God said do that, let's just throw a time on it, 6 p.m. They don't have a watch. He, he didn't have that first Apple watch. So, you know, he was kind of stuck. And he didn't know the Swiss back then. So he, he didn't have that. Okay. So let's just say 6 p.m. God says to him, Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac. So from that point to 6 a.m., that 12-hour period, I'm just speculating here. It, it was a certain number of hours. We just don't know how long. But for that period, he's thinking about it. And what's he thinking? Well, I imagine first there's a rush of emotions. I, I can't kill my son. There's just no way I can't do that. Okay, God wants me to do this. I have to do it. I mean, I already left my home hundreds of miles away. I've been doing this because of what he said. I, I, I'm, I'm invested here. I've got to do this. And Abraham, at some point, said, now, wait a minute. He said, this is the child of promise. And if this is the child of promise and I kill him, then the promise is gone. Well, that, how does that work? Can, can you see that going through his brain? I mean, this is actually what going through because it says he was accounting. He actually came to a value conclusion. This must be true then. If, if God is saying kill him and he's the son of promise and it's only him, it's only in him and he has no children, so it's not going to be any grandsons I have, then, then something's got to happen to him. He's got to rise from the dead. That's the only thing that can happen. Okay, I can do this now. And he gets up, says, all right, let's get our donkey. Isaac, grab some wood. Okay, we're going to have ourselves a sacrifice. But, but dad, where's the lamb? We don't have one, son. Now turn around. You know, The Bible doesn't say exactly how it happened, but I'm sure Isaac's thinking, now wait a minute, what, what was this that God said to you last night? And what? how am I involved? Can, can you see him try to maybe... Think through this. So you're going to stab me and I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back to life. Okay. I can go along with that. Sure. 
I, I mean, this has to be what's going on here. How else do you explain the record? And of course, God stops Abraham. He stops and halts. The angel of the Lord says, okay, don't do it. Stop. Well, he's about to kill his son. But, but here, Abraham was able to swing his arm. He's moving his arm. The thinking process is now saying, take out your knife, raise your hand. All of this is going on because something in his heart was absolutely convinced of one truth. God will raise him from the dead. That's absolutely true. So this is going to be painful, but not permanent. And then the preacher says, Isaac died in a figurative sense. And Abraham became convinced of something that becomes really important later on. God can raise dead people. And from this point forward in the record, and it's right at the beginning of your Bible, you should get convinced of something. God can raise dead people. Because in that figurative sense, we see something, I think, of Jesus. Now, all of that is true. But the question is, do you trust God like that? You know, I trust that God has a better place for me, and I trust that the things that seem impossible are real, and I trust that when he challenges my faith in him, my belief in him, I believe him so much that I can face these challenges of life and just say, Lord, I'm just going to believe you. I'm going to trust in your promises. Do you feel that way? Is that how you believe? What about during a test or a trial? Do you trust him during a financial crisis or in family needs or in marital difficulties or in health problems? You see, this, this changes everything. There is a creator God. He has revealed himself and I trust him. And that's it. It's so simple. Everything's going to flow out of that. If I don't trust him, then I can just unravel the things ahead of him. I can go back and say, well, I don't really believe in the revelation. And I really don't believe there's a creator God. You can unravel everything else. But if you believe there's a creator God and you believe he's revealed himself, and this is the revelation of God, then friends, it is simple to say, do you believe it or not? And if you believe it, you believe it. And you stake your whole life on it. Now I'm going to stop this message right here for just a second and do something I've never ever done before. I need a volunteer. Preferably a teenager. Any teenager want to volunteer? Come on, it's your chance. This is your chance to volunteer. Come on. I see people shaking their heads no. Come on. I need a volunteer. Jesse, come on up here. This is going to be great. Jesse, I want you to know you can trust me. You can trust me. Now stand right here. Stand right here. Now, have you guys ever been to these? You're fine, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Have you guys <laughs> ever been to those uh, business seminars where they, it used to be kind of maybe 20 years ago, they did that whole walk on fire coal thing. You know what I'm talking about? And then they have, what's the trust exercise? Do you know the trust exercise? <laughs> it's the fall back. <laughs> and I'm going to catch you. Now, we're going to do this. You're going to turn around with this, okay? So that people don't see your face. All the way around. All the way around. Because I don't want to see what's about to happen. You're going to be fine. Okay? Now, we're, you, there's a step here right behind you. So when you fall, it's going to really hurt. 
You're probably going to get really interested. I'm going to catch you. Okay? Now, you can believe me. You can believe me. I'm going to catch you. Okay? You, you believe me, right? He says yes. <laughs> All right. Now, we're going to just imagine your mind like a pit of snakes here. Maybe in like a horrible, like, fire-breathing snakes. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to fall into a pit of fire-breathing snakes. But I'm going to catch you. Okay? So close your eyes. Close your eyes. Your eyes closed. All right. Now, begin to hold on. Should he trust me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that just hurts. All right, you go sit down. Give a follow-up. <laughs> Should he trust me? Yeah. Should he? Yeah. 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 Here, here's, here's the answer. You ready for it? No. He should not. <laughs> <laughs> what if you start falling and I am hurt? Right? I mean, that could happen. Or, or I could, or I could, uh, um, my arms could just go limp. Um, that would really hurt. You shouldn't trust me. You sit down. <laughs> and why shouldn't you trust me? Because I'm not God. That silly little exercise where they take a chair and they put a chair. You ever see this? They put a chair out there and they say, and they say, there's a chair there. You believe that the chair holds you up? You know what's wrong with that exercise? I can see the chair. Of course that chair will hold me up. It's not a trick chair. It's a chair. Then you just have to sit in it. That's not faith. That's not trust. Trust is God saying, there's a chair behind you. You sit down. And you go, okay. But Lord, I can't see the chair. That's okay. I'm God. And I'll catch you. Let's pray. Lord. This is so important. And if we don't get this, everything else is just going to fall apart. We have to trust you because you're God. I thank you, Lord, for your word. It helps me so much. I can't see, but I can believe because I have that word. It's not blind faith. It's revealed faith. And I don't always believe, but I believe. And when I don't believe, I need you to help my unbelief. Before I finish praying, how many of you say, Pastor, I trust God, but I really don't trust him. I struggle with this idea that he has a better place for me. I struggle with this idea of the things that seem impossible, that science has seemingly disproven. I struggle even with this idea of when my faith is challenged by life's tests. I'm struggling with my belief. And just like you prayed, I want God to help my unbelief for my family, for my health, for my finances, for my life. Now, if that's what the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you about, I'd love to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand? Pastor, pray for me.
Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I see your hand. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. I'm just not rock solid all the time. I struggle in some of this stuff. Help me just to trust, completely trust. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you how you work in our hearts. Change us by your truth. Sanctify us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to pray for just in just a moment and close the service in prayer. Before we do, uh, I think it would be a really good song to sing, Trust and Obey. Uh, we don't usually end our services. We, we have a minute here, so we can do that. Uh, if we look up that song, I think it'd be good if we just stand and sing, Trust and Obey. We'll just sing the first stanza. And after we do Hamsa, if you'll close us in prayer. 418. When you walk with the Lord in the light of his word. There it is. Trust and obey. Let's stand and sing. One stanza.